Think with me for just a moment. What are some of the most important questions that you have ever asked yourself? If I could see the thought bubbles, maybe you've asked, what am I going to do with my retirement in this season? What degree or career should I pursue? Who am I going to marry? Should we have children or more children? Can we have children? How am I going to get out of debt? Where am I, where are we going to live? How am I going to handle this ongoing marital or parental challenge and struggle? How can I reach and connect with my wayward child? Where should I go to church? Maybe one of these questions is popping up into your head. Or maybe it's some of the deeper questions of life. Questions like, why do we exist? Who am I? And why am I here? What is my purpose? Why do joy and pain and suffering even exist? Am I molecules duct taped together? Or do I have inherent, intrinsic dignity? Does God exist? Well, these are all important questions. These are good questions. And you all at some point in your life have likely asked one of them or or some of them or something like them, and you've sought answers for them. But I'm here to tell you this morning that there is a far greater question, a far more important question. And how you answer this question has eternal significance. And here is the question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, the book that we are going to be walking into this morning, the book of John, is by pure grace given to us to both address and answer that question. Who is Jesus? And so with that question resting on our hearts and in our minds, uh, please turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel according to John. The Gospel according to John. John is the fourth book of the New Testament. So if you just kind of open your Bible to the middle and just go forward a handful of pages, you'll likely land somewhere in that vicinity. The fourth gospel account is the gospel according to John. And just a note on that word, gospel. That word means good news. So this is John's book of good news right here. And that good news, the object of that good news is the person and work of Jesus. And we're going to see that over and over 
again as we encounter him on the pages of this gospel account. This morning, we're going to be embarking on that series through John titled, Behold. This is really going to be a journey from the beginning to end of this book. And if you do not have a Bible, you can find one in a pew near you. It will be, you'll, you'll be helped to actually keep your Bible open to this passage this morning. We're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. If you're new to reading the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. And you'll be helped to follow along as we read together and work through these verses together. Please follow along as I read this prologue, John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness. We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word to the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the hearing and applying of His Word this morning. Let's pray together once again. Father, we thank You for Your good and Your profitable Word, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that You would turn the lights on in our dim hearts and minds so that we may see Your truth more clearly this morning. We ask that we would not simply be informed by Your Word today, but transformed by it. We ask that You would renew our minds and that we would be forever changed as we encounter Jesus this morning. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, before we walk through these first 18 verses, this prologue of John, uh, before we walk through this passage, we need to first establish three things. We need to establish the author, the audience, and the aim of the book. 
author, audience, and aim. First, the author of this book, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is a man named John. Now, John was one of Jesus' disciples. He was in the inner circle around Jesus. He was a firsthand eyewitness of the life and then the later death and resurrection of Jesus. He is even called in John chapter 13 a beloved disciple of Jesus. Now, there is no verse in the gospel according to John that says, thus wrote John. But it has been commonly understood in the majority of church history that this beloved disciple, John, wrote this book. As we work through this book, we're going to find that out. We're going to get glimpses of that more and more as we unfold this story. So that's the author. The author is a man named John. Second, let's look at the audience. John follows three other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John came after them when it was written and given to the church likely around 85 A.D., So it has been largely understood that this book was originally written to second-generation Christians. Second-generation Christians. Christians who may have known things about Jesus, but because of their, you know, because of their family life or their culture, they they needed to come to a fuller and bigger and greater understanding of Jesus. These Christians needed to be encouraged not to just know of Jesus, but to believe. In Jesus. But beyond this original context and audience, this book was truly given to all who believe in Jesus. To all who need to be encouraged to have a deeper faith and belief in Jesus. All who are on the fence about Jesus. Who are maybe struggling even this morning to answer that question, who is this this man anyways? Who is Jesus? And it's also written to all of those who have not heard the truth of Jesus. Past, present, and future. This is John's audience. Third, let's look at the aim. This is the aim of the book. Every book of the Bible has a purpose. Did you know that? Every book of the Bible has a purpose. Every author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has an aim. Somewhere he is taking the reader. And John is explicit about the aim or the purpose of this book in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. You don't have to turn there. You don't have to turn there, but John chapter 20, 30 through 31, here's what it says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the aim of this book. It is written so that we might behold Jesus and come to a deeper and deeper belief in Jesus. The aim of John's book of good news is so that we might come to a fuller understanding of who Jesus is. So with the 
author and the audience and the aim and view, so let's now focus in on the main point, the main point of the verses that we read just a moment ago, uh, verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1. This is the main point. It's short, it's simple, and it's sweet. Here it is. Jesus is God. There's one thing that you write down today, that's, that's it. Jesus is God. And John reveals this point as he causes us to, to look and to behold the greatness of Jesus in verses 1 through 13 and the glory of Jesus in verses 14 through 18. That's our outline this morning. Point one is the greatness of Jesus in verses 1 through 13. And then point two is the glory of Jesus. And we're going to see that in verses 14 through 18. So point one, the greatness of Jesus. Look with me at verses 1 through 13 once again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Have you ever stood before a mountain? Uh, maybe Mount Hood or Mount Rainier up in Washington or Mount Baker? Have you ever stood before a mountain and thought to yourself, that is so big and I am very small? That is big and I am small. Well, we must admit that when we stand before these verses, we have to admit that there is majesty here. There is greatness here that's far bigger than we could ever imagine. Right here in the words of John chapter 1. Here we are confronted with the grandeur and the greatness of Jesus. The one John calls the Word. And in verses 1 through 3, we learn many things about Jesus who is the Word. What are some of those things? Well, first, we learn that he was, look there with me, in the beginning. Now, does that sound familiar to you? It should. It should sound familiar to you. John wants us to be sure that Jesus was in the beginning. He is hearkening back. He is pointing us back to Genesis 1, verse 1. Again, John wants us to be sure that Jesus was in the beginning, that he has existed eternally with all supremacy and all majesty. He wants us to see that all things were created, as it says there in verse 3, through him. And without him, nothing, nothing could have been made. Do you know what this means? It means that just as God spoke all things into existence in Genesis 1, verse 1, 
just as he did that work so long ago. He did so through Jesus, who is the Word. It means that Jesus is the very Word of God. And so in the words of one theologian, Jesus reveals God's mind, God's will, God's perfections, and God's heart. So Jesus reveals. God has revealed himself and spoken to us through his word, his final and ultimate word, Jesus, and through this word, 66 books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that testify of him. That's how God has spoken to us and revealed himself. And it's God's word, Jesus, and God's word here that are inseparable. And they have to be, they must be the center of our life together. Brothers and sisters, how do others know our mind and our heart? How? Unless we speak. Actions can only go so far. And why is that important? Why is that important? Because, for instance, in my home, my wife and my daughters can know and experience my love by me doing things for them and with them. Yes. There's something different when I look my wife or my my daughters in the eyes and say, I love you. I love you. They not only see my love, but they intimately hear my love. In Jesus, we see and hear the loving heart of God. We see the love of God on full display. Our God who is not out of touch, but in touch. Second, we also learn, verses 1 through 2, that the Word was with God. Now, here, John is causing us to behold the greatest mystery of all time, and that is the Trinity. That God is one being, one true God, that has eternally existed in three persons. It's three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And here we learn that Jesus, the Word, was from the beginning face-to-face, near, intimate to, intimate, intimately close to the Father and the Spirit. And here we learn that Jesus, the Word, is not only in the beginning and not only with God, but also, third, that He is God. Notice there at the close of verse 1, that he is God. Jesus is God. I can't say that enough times this morning. So who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Is he a historical figure? A wise man? A good guy that said some good things? Is he an influencer? Is he an, a, a megalomaniac? Is he a prophet amongst prophets or a philosopher amongst philosophers? A God amongst the gods of world religions? A slightly nuanced version of Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or whoever? Who is Jesus to you? 
here is what the Holy Spirit through the hand of John wants us to see and hear clearly. And it's that Jesus is not a God, but that Jesus is God. The God. And this makes him, as it has been said, a liar, a lunatic, or Lord over all. Who is Jesus to you? How you answer that question today is a matter of spiritual life and spiritual death. And it's a matter of whether you are in the light or in darkness. And that's where John takes us next, there in verses 4 through 5. Look there with me. In him, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Behold, Jesus, the true life and light of all men and women. Well, I know you've likely been there. You uh, get up in the middle of the night to find the bathroom, or you're trying to find the kitchen for a you know, 2 a.m. snack, and you're kind of trying to navigate the darkness, and it's until the light comes on uh, that it's really hard not to stumble and fall and hurt ourselves. Well, that's, what, that's what's happening here at a spiritual level. On a spiritual level, that's what's happening here. Here, John upholds the greatness of Jesus by upholding the truth that he is true life that has come to a spiritually dead world, that he is true light that has come to a spiritually dark world. Oh, in this spiritually dead and and dark brothel of a world, Jesus alone is pure life and pure light. And outside of him, there is only death. There is only darkness. This is what God's people believe and proclaim and have believed and and have proclaimed. This is what we see in verses 6 through 8. There was a man, look there with me, there was a man from God, sent from God, whose name was John. Now, this John is not the author of the book. It's not. This is a man named John the Baptist, and we're going to learn a lot about him next week in the next sermon. But we read verse 7 that John came as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John the Baptist, like all humble Christians, recognize that they are not the life and light, but are simply witnesses to, mirrors of, reflectors of the greatness of Jesus, the life and light of Jesus. Earlier this week, we gathered to celebrate one of our own. We gathered to celebrate Judy Thompson's life and the, and the light that she was to so many of us. But ultimately, we gathered this last Wednesday to celebrate Jesus and his life and light through Judy to so many of us here in this room. For my wife and I, a very short amount of time, too short. See, humble and yes, imperfect. We need to. Yes, imperfect Christians recognize that they are insufficient, 
incapable on their own, but that they need the life and light of Jesus day by day, moment by moment. So where are you finding life today? Are you seeking life in your bank account? Or in your retirement? Or in a hobby? Or in sex? Or in pornography? Or in video games and media? In your social status? Your career? Are you finding and seeking life in in maybe your spouse or your children or your grandchildren? Are you seeking life in the things that you are doing for the community? Or bringing this closer to to home and, and life in the church, are you seeking life in your role? Or what you are doing for the church? Are you seeking life in the past traditions of the church? Many of these are good, good gifts from God, but they will not bring true life. So where are you seeking and finding life today? To have life in Jesus, we need to be clear, to have life in Jesus means that you are living in and loving his word. To have life in Jesus means that you are living with and loving his people here at HFBC. It means that you are living in and loving and cherishing Jesus more than anything. Finding him more precious than anything in this world. Jesus alone is life. So are you finding life in him? Or are you spiritually dead and in darkness? Part of the world, as it says there in verses 10 through 11, rejecting him. I mean, it's amazing. Did you notice this in verse 11, that Jesus came to his own? Who, who are those? Well, that is, that's ethnic Israel, the Jewish people of Israel in the Old Testament. Those who were expecting him waiting for him. And John says here that they did not receive him. So are you receiving him or rejecting him today? John wants to make this abundantly clear that if you want lasting life and true light, then you have to receive and believe in Jesus. And brother, sister, if you have received Jesus I've got good news. If you have received Jesus, if you are living in ongoing repentance of sin, all those ways that you once walked in darkness, and you are placing your hope and belief in Jesus, finding life and light in Him by pure, sovereign grace, then brother and brother, sister, you have been made a child of God. You have been made a part of his family, a better family. You are no longer simply flesh and blood, born of the will of man. But you are born of God, spiritually, by the work of the Spirit and the Word. That means that you've been called out of darkness and into light. That means that you've been called out of death 
and into life, in and with God. It means that you've been plucked out of the brothel of this world and set in the life and light of Jesus. Can we just stop and ponder that for a moment? This doesn't happen by any work of our own. This work fully happens by God's sovereign grace. Well, here in these verses, John has made and upheld the point that Jesus is God. And he has done this by upholding the greatness of Jesus before us, causing us to behold him. But there's still more. There's still more in this prologue. So let's look now at verses 14 through 18 at the glory of Jesus. And that's point two. Point two, the glory of Jesus. Look with me again at verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I asked, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Here we behold the glory of Jesus, the Son of God, the one who is full of grace and truth. And in order to to see the unfolding kind of beauty and cohesion of these verses more clearly, in order to more beautifully see kind of what John is doing here, because again, he's doing something here. We need to, once again, like we did back in verse 1, we need to look back. We need to look back to the beginning of our Bible. You don't need to turn there. But we need to see that, that John here is connecting Jesus to all of redemptive history, to all of history before him. And he will in the rest of this book after him. Once again, John is taking us back to Genesis 1-1, where we read, in the beginning God created, and the story begins where? It's a childhood answer, in the garden. It starts in the garden that he created, and God created the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, and he placed them there in the garden, and he set them there to work and to do what? Keep it. To work and to keep it. And catch this, God dwelled with his people in the garden. God dwelled with his people in the garden. But Adam and Eve rebelled. Uh, The garden became an autonomous zone. Paradise was lost, and sin entered the world. And it's not just Adam and Eve who have sinned. We know from Scripture, from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, we know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone in this room is a sinner in need of grace, and the wages of sin is what? It's death. Not just physical, but spiritual death. And because of our sin, the final destiny of unbelieving sinners is eternal judgment in a place called hell. And because of our sin, there is separation between the holy and the unholy, the infinite and the finite, the creator and the created, between God 
and man. In the end, a holy God of life and light, as we saw back in those first 13 verses, cannot dwell with a people of death that are in darkness. But God, oh, but God, being rich in mercy and grace, made a promise. And it's that promise that we read earlier in Genesis 3.15, that there would one day be a promised seed, an offspring, one who would be a better Adam, one who would be a worthy son, that would make a way for God to dwell with his people once again. But that promise wouldn't be fulfilled for some time, right? There's a lot of space there between Genesis 3 and John 1. A lot of space. So how did God dwell with his people in the meantime, between that promise made and the promise kept? Well, he did so through structures. Through structures. We can trace God's structural dwelling with his people from Genesis all the way to John and beyond, but we're going to focus on that connection Peace between Genesis and John this morning. So let's briefly do that. Are you with me? Okay, all right. Okay, here we, here we are. If we fast forward from Genesis 1 through 3 to Exodus 25, we find God's people living in tents. And so God chooses to meet them where they are. And to do what? To live in a tent, a sanctuary, a tabernacle, a structure with them. And when the structure was complete, we read in Exodus chapter 40, again, you don't have to turn there, just maybe make a note there. In Exodus chapter 40, we see that God's presence, and this is key, God's glory fills the temple, or fills that that tent, tabernacle, and God dwelt with his people once again. And if we fast forward in our Bibles a bit further, we come to God's people coming out of Egypt. You know, the story of Exodus, right? They're coming out of Egypt, and they're in the wilderness. And then after that, they, they begin to build more permanent places. And we read that God trades this tent tabernacle for a temple. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 8 that the presence and glory of God filled that temple. Filled the temple. But physical structures don't last forever, right? We don't have to go very far to to see some ruins. And so, if we fast forward once again into the New Testament to John 1, verse 14, look there with me, we see all of this come together in Jesus, who is the theme and pinnacle of all of Scripture right here. And the Word became flesh and dwelt tabernacled among us. And we have seen his, check this out, glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. We're going to hear more about that truth a little later in the series. But I only have so much time. Do you see what's happening here in John 1, verse 14, in the storyline of Scripture? Jesus is the presence and glory of God on full display with his people. He is God, the Word made flesh. He is not cold and distant, but he is actually quite 
imminent and near. He is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. He was and is the presence of God among his people. He dwelt, tabernacled among his people, and he is the glory of God embodied. And so pulling everything that we've just heard, let's summarize this. God once made his house, dwelled and revealed his glory to his people in the beginning, in the garden, and then through structures in the Old Testament. But then in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, God made his house in the Son, the incarnation, the Word made flesh. And we read here that Jesus came from the Father, and that means that he was sent from the Father to be the glory of God revealed once and for all. This is John's point further down in, in verse 18, where we read that Jesus is the one who reveals God. And in Jesus and through Jesus, the love and the life and the light of God has come. Where there was once death, there is now life. Where there was once darkness, there is now light. And it's against the the inky black backdrop of injustice and unrighteousness and darkness that we see Jesus who was before John the Baptist and before all, as it says there in verse 15. We read that he has brought glory and grace and truth as the one who is the fullness of God. He can't get any fuller. He's the fullness of God. And as the fullness of God, he fulfilled the the law, the law given to Moses. It's mentioned there in verse 17. Now, we need to be clear here that John is not negating or belittling the law here. But he is making the point that Jesus has brought something better through his person, through his work, through a better covenant. And though his people have broken God's law and have been unfaithful, the glorious word Jesus in his person and work has brought grace and truth as the faithful covenant fulfiller once and for all. That's who Jesus is. And he did this so that all might repent and believe in him. Oh, in the end, Jesus, the fullness of God, entered this world. He exchanged a a robe of splendor for a robe of frail humanity. He entered this world of abuse and divorce, and pain, and death, and loss, and war, and violence, and mental and physical illness. He stepped into our suffering and walked a path of suffering ahead of us, from cradle to cross. And it's on the cross where he was crucified and he suffered the weight. He bore the weight of God's wrath against our sin, our rebellion. And he did this as the God-man, the only reconciler between God and man. And then three days later, what, what happened? Three days later, he got up from the dead, securing salvation for those who repent, who turn from darkness. 
and, and believe in him and turn toward life in him. And we who are then in Christ and have Christ dwelling in us have received, verse 16, grace upon grace. Don't you love that phrase? Grace upon grace. Because of Jesus where there was once death upon death and darkness upon darkness, now there is life upon life and light upon life and grace upon grace. This is good news. And here's what John is doing here. We've got to see this. In the Old Testament, God dwelled with his people through structures, as we, as we saw. And then we read here in John 1 that he has dwelled with his people in the Son. So from structures to the Son. And now he dwells with those who have received grace upon grace, who are called the saved. From structure to the Son to the saved. He dwells with those who have not rejected Jesus, but have received grace upon grace in Jesus. And this isn't just a personal reality. This is actually a collective reality. Have you considered this? This is a collective reality. And that collective is called the church. The church is a local collective, a fellowship of the saved. And it is the church that is a beacon of life and light and the glory of Jesus to a dead and dark world. Brother, sister, do you believe that about the church? If you're a member here at HFBC, do you believe that about this body of believers? That we are an evidence of the life and light of Jesus? I pray that you would. I pray that you would. Now, if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, and I don't mean just like know things about Jesus, but if you, if you don't know him, if you don't believe in him, if you don't have life in him, well, I'll be standing in the, in the back after the service. I would love to meet you. I would love to talk with you. I would love to share with you more about who Jesus is, about his word, and what this fellowship of the saved looks like here at HFBC. I would love nothing more than that. And there are other people in the pew next to you that would love to talk with you about that. And there are four other pastors, elders here, that would love to talk with you about that. Well, we should close. John has laid the foundation for the whole book here in these first 18 verses that Jesus is God. That's been his point. And he has confronted us. He's caused us to behold the majesty, right? The greatness of Jesus, and the goodness of Jesus. And he has caused us to behold the glory of Jesus as the theme and apex, the pinnacle of all of Scripture, right here in these 18 verses. And so, the question still remains, what will you do with Jesus today? Who is Jesus to you today? Let's pray. Gracious God, we praise you that you have planned salvation. Son, we praise you that you have accomplished salvation in coming into this dark world as life and light. Spirit, we praise you that you have applied salvation to sinners like us. And we thank you, God, for the gospel. We praise you and we thank you and we rejoice in it. And we ask that you would help us grow in it. 
to know it, to believe in it, to rest in it, to live in it, to have our lives, to live our lives out of it. And so we ask that you would give us what we have not, that you would teach us what we know not, and that you would make us what we are not for your glory and your praise. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.